This morning we consider together the 10th commandment, Deuteronomy 20, verse 17, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. We turn in Holy Scripture to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth? For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died, and the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do I allow not, for what I would that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, 
But how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Our Heidelberg Catechism expounds the Tenth Commandment in Lord's Day 44. and wraps up its treatment of the Ten Commandments in questions and answers 113 through 115. What doth the Tenth Commandment require of us? That even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments never rise in our hearts, but that at all times, We hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. But can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? No. But even the holiest men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of this obedience. Yet so that with a sincere resolution they begin to live not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. Why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached, since no man in this life can keep them? First, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in the life to come. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we come today to the conclusion of the law, we stand before the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment is unwavering in the light that it shines upon our sinfulness. It exposes the thoughts and intents of the heart. The monster of sin that lies beneath our outward actions or expression is exposed in all its horror. That's how the Tenth Commandment struck the Apostle Paul, too, when God opened his spiritual eyes and understanding. As we read in Romans 7, verse 7, 
I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. The law itself brings crushing bondage. But now, we come before the law with the light of the gospel flooding our understanding. Christ has come. We belong to our faithful Savior. He has fulfilled that law for us. By the shedding of his blood, he blotted out all our transgressions. In his life, he fulfilled all obedience for us. Therefore, being justified by faith without the works of the law, we are no longer under the law, but under grace. But now, we are delivered from the law, Paul writes that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. In that light, we consider the Tenth Commandment exposing the prince of invisible sins. We notice, first of all, what it is. Secondly, the slavery it brings. And finally, the victory that is ours in Christ. The prince of invisible sins is covetousness. Forbidden in the Tenth Commandment is all lust and improper desires. The Tenth Commandment, therefore, does not address the outward actions. It addresses the thoughts and intents of the heart. We've seen in our consideration of each of the previous nine commandments that each of the commandments is to be interpreted spiritually as reaching the sins of the heart and mind and therefore not just limited to a few literal words of each commandment. That broader implication of the law is something well established in Jesus' own exposition of the law, especially in his Sermon on the Mount. But the Tenth Commandment emphasizes that the whole law must be pressed upon us in such a way as to expose the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Catechism speaks of the Tenth Commandment as forbidding even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments. Desire and longing for certain things belongs to our human nature. Christ himself experienced hunger and thirst. We too have a desire for food and drink. There are many, many desires that are healthy, even godly desires. We just sang of our desire for God's approval. Earlier we sang, as the heart panteth after the water brooks, so longs my soul, O living God, for thee. 
but because of sin. Many of our desires have been misdirected and corrupted. And consequently, our desires are directed to things not permitted us. When we expounded the seventh commandment, for example, we saw Jesus expose the heart sin involved. When he said, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. To desire a neighbor's spouse is not permitted. Those desires inherent to our natures become exposed as misdirected when we put an improper value on things we desire or desire to a wrong measure. So, the Bible speaks of the sin of gluttony, for example. We know that sin has so corrupted our desires when we place such priority on satisfying our desires that we might even fulfill those desires by means other than those ordained by God. Even when you think, for example, of Abraham's desire for that promised seed, but his and Sarah's impatience in God's timetable for fulfilling that promise, then you see how their desire was so intense They would attempt to bring about the fulfillment of that promise themselves, even violating God's law to do so. So the Tenth Commandment requires that even the smallest inclination or thought, contrary to any of God's commandments, never rise in our hearts, but that we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. Notice, however, that the Tenth Commandment not only forbids covetousness, it forbids covetousness in relationship to the neighbor. Coveting the neighbor's possession is what is specifically forbidden in the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his maidservant, nor his manservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor. The neighbor's house is his residence, provided him by God. To own Your own house is something to which many aspire. It's a worthy goal. It can even be a good exercise of stewardship when it is within the means God has provided. But our young couples especially realize that goal of having your own house is more and more of a challenge in our day. 
40 years ago, probably more than that now, but when I bought, when we bought our first house, you could buy a house for twice your annual income. Inflation has put the cost of housing at probably six to ten times a young working man's annual income. Our sinful flesh is inclined to covet that nice house our neighbor has when we're sitting in a small apartment. But the Tenth Commandment calls us to contentment with our situation and with what God has given us. And what's true of the neighbor's house is true of all that he owns. Especially in our prosperous society when when people own so many toys and earthly possessions, we might have easily desire to have what the neighbor has. That desire, that covetousness, might even impel us to use a credit card or to take out a loan to buy what we don't even have the means to buy. But the positive calling God gives us is to be content and therefore to exercise self-control or restraint. You see, when we covet in our hearts what God has not been pleased to give us, then we are expressing discontent with God's sovereign government of our lives. That sin might not even be seen by others. But it is known to God, before whom nothing is hidden, The commandment speaks also of coveting relationships that belong to the neighbor. Romans 7, verse 7, the inspired apostle speaks of lust. I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. This commandment exposes to us the lust that belongs to our sinful nature. So the commandment forbids us from coveting the neighbor's wife. That sin was also addressed concretely in the seventh commandment. But here adultery is exposed at its very root, which is lust. Perhaps a single man looks at the wife that God has given so-and-so and would desire her. Perhaps a husband, losing sight of the precious gift God has given him in his wife, begins to look at the neighbor's wife as more desirable. Perhaps a wife, not receiving the attention she deserves from her husband, sees the attention another man gives his wife, and would desire him. But it isn't just the marriage relationship that's attacked by our covetous thoughts. The commandment speaks of his manservant and his maidservant. 
Maybe it's not the neighbor's wife, but his son or daughter. You young men recognize that daughter as the possession of her father? That's the case. Until that father gives her hand in marriage to her spouse. You think about that relationship in which she stands? And you young women, do you recognize that son's relationship to his dad? He's subject to him. Or are your thoughts entirely about what you want? Coveting is all about what I think will make me happy. The human mind is full of dreams and desires. To covet is to crave those things, to set our minds upon them without regard to relationships divinely established. Then there are the things of the neighbor, the things, his possession. Exodus 20 verse 17 speaks, uses language somewhat puzzling to us in our day when it speaks of the neighbor's ox and ass. In our day, we would refer to a man's property or or assets and his means of transportation. That nice set of wheels that neighbor owns. Maybe I'm driving an old beater. Wouldn't it be nice to have what he has? And then there's those snowmobiles and those four-wheelers. All those other toys. Sure would like to have those. That's coveting. But that nothing of the neighbors might fall out of the restriction of this commandment Because you well know how we like to look for the loopholes. We're not to covet anything that belongs to the neighbor. We're to rejoice for the neighbor's sake in what God has given him. The slavery that this prince of invisible sins brings is a slavery that can only be liberated by Jesus Christ. It's an intense slavery that is exposed by this prince of invisible sins, the sin of covetousness. This sin, in fact, is the origin or root of all sinful deeds. It's like that that wildfire being swept along by by fierce winds. It stops for nothing in its pathway. It's ruthless in its destruction. James 1 verse 15 says that when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The covetous man does more than think What can I do to better my circumstances in life and make better use of my gifts? 
He isn't thinking in terms of faithful stewardship with the gifts God has given him. The covetous man has an intense desire so that his mind is fixed on what he lusts after. He would even look for the opportunity to get what he wants, even at the expense of his neighbor. Maybe that neighbor happens to be his wife, his own wife. But instead he has eyes for another man's wife. And realizing that she's outside his reach, he turns to pornography instead, to the destruction of his own wife. That's just one example of lust conceiving and bringing forth sin. Our children will remember the story of Achan during the days of Joshua. We read about Achan's sin in Joshua chapter 7. You remember that the Lord had spoken to Joshua and had told him Upon entering Canaan, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. Rahab had told the two men who came to Jericho that, that the hearts of the people had melted, nor was there courage in any man so that they returned to Joshua, those two men returned to Joshua, and they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord hath delivered into our hands all the land. Even all the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. So after taking Jericho, they went to the little village of Ai, expecting that the Lord would give them the victory, and they took a beating. 36 soldiers from Israel were killed, 3,000 put to flight before the men of Ai. And then we are told this happened because of the sin of Achan. And by Achan's own testimony, that sin began by his covetousness. He said... Joshua 7, verse 21. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent, and the silver under it. Achan saw all that money, and he coveted. He wanted it so badly, he began scheming how to get it, and it didn't take him long before his lust conceived and brought forth sin. That's how our sinful actions begin. 
with sinful desire, covetousness. So this sin is one that exposes that exposes the enslavement of heart and mind. From that point of view, the Tenth Commandment is not just another commandment added to the list, an isolated commandment along with each of the other nine. The Tenth Commandment is given by God to summarize all the commandments spiritually and to interpret them. God does not merely require outward conformity to his law. He demands obedience from the whole heart. Or as Jesus says in the summary of the law, with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the mind. But the Tenth Commandment exposes the thoughts and intents of the heart. This invisible sin, a sin that in whatever form the state is not able to punish, this invisible sin has such capability of disguising itself that we can make a reasonable case for excusing it. Well, certainly this thing I want is for my good. This is a bargain. How can I pass it up? Or, I'm only doing this to help someone else. Uh, my, My neighbor's wife, after all, what a miserable existence she had. Covetousness is like a cancer aggressively overwhelming us and sweeping us into the jaws of death. The heart being overwhelmed by imagined needs and desires pushes aside healthy desires and weakens us. Relationships can do that. Unhealthy relationships can do that. But for this reason, covetousness is also named in Scripture as the root of apostasy. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, one of the marks of the perilous times which will mark the last days is that men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous. In the next chapter, Paul writes Timothy about how that shall unfold. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Paul indicates that people will follow pastors who will 
who will give them what they want to hear, who will not exhort or admonish them or confront their sins. And if sin is not confronted, there's no need for the Savior. The gospel is lost. So covetousness, this this prince of invisible sins, brings devastating slavery. And then in the light of the Tenth Commandment comes the question, can you keep God's law perfectly? When the Tenth Commandment requires that even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments never rise in our hearts, but that at all times we hate all sin with our whole heart, and delight in all righteousness, can you keep God's law perfectly? After all, the perfectly holy and righteous God settles for nothing less. It's one thing you see to to look at the law as did the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They could even add laws upon laws and precepts upon precepts and feel pretty good about themselves. But as Paul wrote when he later had his eyes open to the truth, I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. The tenth commandment put to death the thoughts of his own self-righteousness. His sin was exposed as exceeding sinful. And that was true as a regenerated Christian. Romans 7 is not speaking about the natural man. Romans 8 verse 7 tells us that the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The Catechism recognizes that the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 speaks as a regenerated child of God. And so the question follows, but can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? Can you, who have heard the wonderful opening words of the law, I am the Lord thy God, can you keep that law perfectly? Well, we don't have to give a lot of consideration to that question, do we? We readily join in the answer of the catechism, no. But even the holiest men while in this life have only a small beginning of this obedience. Yet so that with a sincere resolution, they begin to live not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. By the wonder of God's grace, we've been given the life of Christ. And therefore, the life of obedience to the law. 
We have this treasure in earthen vessels. That the excellency may be of God and not of us. We carry this treasure in our sinful flesh, sinning till our dying day. But having that life of Christ, we struggle, as did the Apostle Paul, expressing it even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 7. And we cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 130, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. The law, you see, points us to our only hope, our sure hope in the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The victory that is ours in Christ is the necessary focus in the preaching of the law. The Catechism would have us face the question concerning the place of the law in the preaching. Seeing that none of us can keep the law perfectly, what's the use of preaching the law? We can't attain to perfection this side of heaven. Doesn't the preaching of the law then serve only to condemn us? Do we need it? Let's read question and answer 115 again. Why then, why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached since no man in this life can keep them? First, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in the life to come. The question recognizes that God will have his law strictly preached. Preached with the full application of that penetrating word of God. That preaching, therefore, is not just the preaching of the Ten Commandments, but all the admonitions of Scripture all which maintain the precepts of God's law. God will have his law preached. But the Catechism also recognizes that that law is inseparably intertwined with the gospel of our salvation in Jesus Christ. That was true from the very 
time of the institution of the law in the Old Testament. Galatians 3 verse 24 establishes that when it says, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Galatians 3 also establishes that being justified by faith, we now stand in a different relationship to the law. We're no longer under that schoolmaster, no longer in bondage. So the catechism points us to the benefit that is ours as we hear the preaching of the law. In the first place, it's true that by the preaching of God's law, we increase in our conviction of the sinfulness of our sin. We learn more and more to know our sinful nature. Sin as we've had opportunity to explain many, many times, is not just the outward action. Sin is something that permeates our very nature. As the Tenth Commandment clearly draws out, we not only have sin, we are sinful. And the preaching of the law shows us more and more how sinful we are. But God does not have his law preached only to show us how sinful we are. That wasn't the case even in the Old Testament. He wouldn't leave us without hope. The second benefit of that strict preaching of the God's law is that we are made the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. Which means that the law, strictly preached, must always be preached in the context of the gospel. As I said in my introduction, we come before the law with the light of the gospel flooding our understanding. Christ has come. We belong to our faithful Savior. Let's not forget the opening confession of the Heidelberg Catechism. Christ has fulfilled the law for us. By the shedding of his blood, he blotted out all our transgressions. In his life, he fulfilled all obedience for us. Therefore, having been justified by faith without the works of the law, we're no longer under the law, but under grace. So when the law compels me to cry out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The Holy Spirit gives us the ready answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so there follows 
a third benefit to that preaching of God's law. That follows from the new place that law has been given to us who are redeemed in Christ. The Holy Spirit, in faithfulness to God's promise, has put his laws into our minds and written them upon our hearts. And in that new relationship in which we stand to him, we delight to live not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. And so we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in a life to come. That's what characterizes the thankful life of the Christian. We're troubled by our imperfection, but we live in the hope of glory. For that state we long and sing with the psalmist in Psalm 17, when I in righteousness at last thy glorious face shall see, when all the weary night is past, and I awake with thee to view the glories that abide, then, then I shall be satisfied. Amen. Father, we thank Thee for Thy law. We thank Thee for the preaching of the law under the light of the gospel. And we thank Thee, therefore, that while Thou dost expose the greatness of our misery, having led us to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Thou hast given us a guide for a life of thankfulness and instilled in us a desire, an earnest desire, to live in obedience to all Thy law, to Thy name's honor and glory, Abide with us, for Christ's sake. Amen.